are kicking off episode 74 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Timeless Border. It is from the band The Surf Coasters. It appears on their album Surf Attack. You can find out more about them over at surfcoasters.com. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, Monster Kid Radio is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. You might say the movies we talk about here on the show are timeless themselves. And I'm excited because this week we've been talking about a definitive classic, a definitive timeless Frankenstein film. We're talking about The Ghost of Frankenstein. Now, this was the fourth Frankenstein film in the Universal Frankenstein cycle. And two days ago, you heard Daniel Horn on the show where we broke down the story. We kind of went beat by beat, talked about what happened in the film, talked about what different elements meant to us, things that we liked. We segued a little bit here and there as we went. Well, in this part of the discussion, we're going to talk about what the film means to us, what Frankenstein overall, the universal cycle, means to us where this film fits in the overall universal monster filmography. A term that Daniel used in the previous episode was thread. He talked about how there was a thread of a story. Well, there's a continued thread of not just story, but fairy tale-ness in The Ghost of Frankenstein. We're going to talk about some of the other performances in the film that we didn't talk about last time. And regrettably, I didn't talk about evil and anchors as much as I wanted to. But you know what? There's always next time. And I actually have some plans in the works to do some Evil and Anchors coverage here on the show down the line. Now, Daniel Horn is an award-winning artist and sculptor. His portrait work, Monster and Otherwise, is amazing. And his masks, I don't know if we talked too much about this last time, he's also an amazing sculptor. He also is a wonderful doll maker, and he's been putting out some videos online kind of teaching people how to do what he does. He's also a friend of mine and an all-around great guy, and I hope you enjoy the conversation we had about The Ghost of Frankenstein, which we're going to get to here in a second. Let's go ahead and get the business out of the way. You know, we talk about this every time here on Monster Kid Radio. You can send us some feedback at our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or give us a call and drop us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, this is over at our website, which is at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to all the music we've ever played here on the show, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Live 365 channel, YouTube, Flickr. It's all there. Go over there for all of your Monster Kid Radio needs between episodes. You'll also find links to everything that we talk about here in the show, including Daniel's website, as well as a few other things I'm going to talk about at the end of the show. Now, I don't know... If you're going to hear this in time for you to get on a bus, get on a plane, start hitchhiking, whatever, to get to the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon, because tonight, this episode is scheduled to go out on February 20th. Should be going out first thing in the morning. So you still have time to get to the Hollywood Theater in Portland for the Monster Kid Radio crash for Santo versus the Martians. This is the second film in the Cinescopio series that's taking place at the Hollywood. Last month we saw Santo versus the Mummies, which technically isn't the real title of the film, but you know, sometimes when they bring these movies up to America or other non-Spanish language speaking countries, they change the titles a little bit. Same thing's happening with Santo versus the Martians. We're going to see that at the Hollywood Thursday night. Showtime is 7 o'clock. I recommend you buy your tickets in advance. That reminds me, I need to do that, and I'll do that here in a moment. After the movie, there's also going to be a 30-minute documentary called Viva Luce Libre, which I've not seen, but I've wanted to. Now, there is a Facebook event page set up for this Monster Kid Radio crash, and I posted the trailer for Viva Luce Libre over there. So if you're going to come, or 
you just want to find out about what happened at the event before I talk about it here on the show proper, go join that event. Say that you're maybe going to show up, and I think that gets you into where you can actually read the posts and maybe even leave a comment or two yourself. Before we get into this continued talk about The Ghost of Frankenstein, I want to go ahead and mention the short novel Fit for a Frankenstein by Paul McComas and Greg Sterrett. We've had Paul on the show in the past to talk about I Walked with a Zombie and Lon Chaney, and we are definitely going to have him on the show in the future. And I'm excited because it's starting to look like we might get Greg Sterrett on the show as well. And I've been told what some of his areas of expertise are, and I can't wait to bring that to the Monster Kid Radio table. It's an area that we have not talked about yet on the show, so it'll be brand new if I can make that happen. We just got to swap a few more emails and line that up. I'm excited for that. In the meantime, y'all should be reading Fit for a Frankenstein. It takes place in the middle of the ghost of Frankenstein. As Daniel pointed out when we talked about this a couple of days ago, there is a sequence in the film where you go from sulfur-encrusted Frankenstein's monster to Frankenstein's monster in a brand new suit. Well... Paul and Greg tells us the story of how he got that new suit. Go over to paulmccomas.com and look up Fit for a Frankenstein. It's under the authored section. Or, again, follow the links in the show note at monsterkidradio.net. You can find Fit for a Frankenstein on Amazon. That's how I got it. So you can find it that way, too. Speaking of Paul McComas, if you go and support Stephen D. Sullivan's Tournament of Death 3 live fantasy novel you're going to get a Paul McComas story. You see, Paul McComas was one of the stretch goals for this crowd-funded adventure. You've heard Paul on the show. You've heard Steve on the show. Monster kids through and through. You want to support what they're doing. You want to read what they're doing. And what Tournament of Death 3 is, is a fantasy novel with plenty of monsters, I'm told, that Steve is writing live every day during the Winter Olympics. As of today, there's four days left for you to get involved. Now, he's already met his goal. Now they're just trying to hit their stretch goals. The other crowdfunding project I want to mention is Long Live the King, The Legacy of Kong. This is the new documentary from Benevolent Monster Productions. Now, their crowdfunding site is over at KPPAL, which is K-A-P-I-P-A-L. They need to raise $29,000 in the next eight days. They're just under 20% of their goal. If you go contribute to this project and you hit the right level, you're going to get a copy of the finished movie. And as somebody who has watched the documentary Beast Wishes more than once, I can tell you you're making a sound investment in a wonderful documentary that's coming down the line. I've been following co-director Frank Dietz on Facebook, and he's posted some pictures. He's interviewed Bob Burns for this. We've got Dana Gould involved. This is going to be a great documentary, folks. Again, follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net to get to that. You know what? I've blabbed a lot here. I hope y'all have been taking notes because we're about to get into... The Ghost of Frankenstein with Daniel Horn right after this. Hi, this is Ruby. And I'm Hater. And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine. And they're all 1950s style black and white movies. The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. <laughs> you can find us at SaintEuphoria.com Or like us on Facebook That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast Hope you tune in You know, I always look at these films I try to look through these films Through the eyes of someone who had seen them in the 30s and 40s But they weren't as worried about 
consistencies from, from the film as we are today. These films that were made, they were shown, for the most part, once in the theater. That's the last time you saw them. Mm-hmm. And it may be a couple years later that you see uh, a sequel. And for the most part, you know, unless you were a film freak, you just went along with it. And I think that, again, going back to the monster kid thing in the 60s, you know, that's one of the things that, that we enjoyed is that, yeah, there are inconsistencies and things kind of, the sets change when they're supposed to be the same building, different, but all through it, there's this wonderful thread, this, this fairy tale thread through all the universal uh, Frankenstein films. And that, that's why it, it took me a while, but The Ghost of Frankenstein really moved up the ladder of films of the Frankenstein movies that I enjoy. And also with The Ghost, it was always Karloff for me growing up. He was the one for me. And it's only as I grow older that I really appreciate Lugosi and his personal struggles through his career, but what he did with what he was given, you know, the material he was given, and he didn't give in to some of the bad scripts. He always, always did his absolute best. And his acting, especially as an Igor, I feel, is his best role. Well, Dracula was fine. I was never a big Dracula fan, but Igor, that was pure Lugosi. Pure Lugosi. Oh, yeah. He pulled out all the stops with that character. And mm. and he had worked with the director, uh, Kenton, before, so uh, on uh, was it Island of Lost Souls together. So I, I Kenton knew what he was getting when he signed on. He knew Lugosi was going to be in the film again. Lugosi can act through makeup, and mm-hmm. Igor is just... That, one of his most tragic characters, I feel like. I love the characterization. Yeah. There's another wonderful thread that runs through the Frankenstein films, and that is the theme of monster and child. Yeah. In the first one, Karloff and the little girl beside the lake. Um, in the, the Bride of Frankenstein, you have the shepherdess falling in the water. He saves her. In the Son of Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein's son, who he's, he's going to kill. You know, he raises him above the, the pit, and then he shoots again, and he puts the child on the uh, the ladder. And again, in, in here, it's the little girl. You know, so that's another wonderful thing that keeps the Frankenstein monster from being a monster, you know, like a, a killing machine, is that there is this soul, this gentle soul that runs through him that recognizes that children aren't a threat, and they are kind of these wonderful little beings. It's really unfortunate, too, because in The Ghost of Frankenstein, I mean, that's kind of the last time you see that, because the brain's been swapped Uh now, and every future Uh Frankenstein appearance is going to be the Igor monster with Igor's brain, and Igor doesn't really have that sense of innocence. Right, right. But, you know, oddly enough, even in the son of Frankenstein, Igor sends the monster out to kill the eight men that uh, convicted him and had him hung. So that's kind of a slight inconsistency of character. Yeah. That, uh, but he still, he, he still never harmed the child. Not intentionally, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's somebody oh. in The Ghost of Frankenstein that we, we didn't mention her, and I had forgotten, actually, and maybe that makes me a bad monster kid. I had forgotten that... <laughs> I had forgotten that Evelyn Ankers was in this, that she's Elsa Frankenstein. Yeah. And yeah. she's, I love her. <laughs> she's fantastic. And she doesn't really have a chance to have any real scenes, I guess, outside of screaming about Lon Chaney showing up. Right. I love the two of them. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, she was in the Wolfman with Cheney, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did a lot of movies together. They did a number of films together. I, I understand they didn't actually, she didn't actually like him very much personally, but they had some great chemistry when they did films together. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I've read that as well. And uh, you know, Cheney had his own demons throughout his life. Sure. To deal with uh, uh, alcoholism, and you know, as far as I could tell, you know, you know what you saw on the, the screen was wonderful work all his demons that uh, he had to deal with all his life. And as as his film career grew, you know, went on, you know, the alcoholism took, a, unfortunately, a stronger grip on him, and it was harder for him to finish films, but he was a, a, a wonderful actor. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, he was the son of Lon Chaney, and I think a lot, a lot of his problems was trying to distance himself and become his own man not just a shadow or an appendage of his father. I, I can't imagine, you know, having to live with that shadow and then having to no, use the name to even to get starring roles to begin with. And I mean, in this film, and I think even in The Wolfman, they don't bill him as Lon Chaney Jr. He's actually in the titles. It's just Lon Chaney. But I mean, that's that's a heck of a, a name to live up to, especially in monster movies. Sure. And, you know, back then, the, the studios, they... At times to be unscrupulous, you know, they basically starved him into accepting the name Lon Chaney because he wanted to be known as Creighton Chaney. didn't want to be known as Lon Chaney Jr. And they basically denied him roles until he acquiesced and he said, okay, I'll do it. And then his career took off. So, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of resentments there. And, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing that, you know, we live in the day and age where Information and like behind the scenes stuff, books and articles and extras on DVDs that you can really kind of find out these people that who they were, a little bit about their lives, and they weren't just these images on film. And in this day and age of, of the internet and all the wonderful things you can find, and also the scholarly articles and books that are, that are written, there's a wonderful I and mean, the absolutely wonderful series. The uh, Magic Image and uh, Bear Manor puts out these wonderful volumes of the original shooting scripts of all the Universal classics. The books are divided into three sections. The first section is kind of they talk about you know the, the actors and actresses of the film and how they got the roles and how long the shooting was, how much it was, and then the center section is copies of the actual shooting script with notations and deletions. And then the third, the back end of it, of the book, is all the advertising art that was used in magazines and newspapers that you might see. Practically all the universal classics from, I guess, the Chinese family opera, you know, the silent films, all the way up to Creature of the Black Lagoon. And it's just, a, as a resource, it's just wonderful. It really is. It really broadens your understanding and appreciation for the people that made these films that, you know, for sometimes just hundreds of thousands of dollars back then, and they're still you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years later, they're still being enjoyed, and they still stand up. And what a wonderful legacy to the men and women who, who made these films, technicians, the uh, costume people, lighting, still photographers, the actors, the actresses, it's it's a wonderful legacy of, of American filmmaking. You know, it really is, and and I've said this before uh, on 
I've said it for years that whenever you watch an older movie, it's kind of a snapshot of what was going on with the studio, with the people, with, with the times. And uh-huh. you can really see, we talked about how the ghost of Frankenstein kind of bridges like the older, very classic stagey kind of Frankenstein films moving into a different era with universal. And you definitely see that in this film. And there's so much to look at and, and enjoy. And you mentioned the costumes, I have decided that I need to learn more about Vera West, who is the person who did all the gowns for Universal. I, I don't know much about her, but I loved the, and <laughs> I'm about to say this. I loved the dress that Evelyn Anchors wore at the beginning of the film. <laughs> I love oh, the, the dress. one that it looks like hands coming across like her breasts or like fingers and yeah. like flames. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. Now, it did make me think of Mano Hands of Fate just a touch. With the, mm-hmm. the, the arms coming up or whatever, Absolutely. but I really love that. And you know, I, I did some quick searching, and man, she was a workhorse for Universal from the '30s through, yeah. you know, her untimely death. Unfortunately, she passed away pretty early uh, in the late '40s. But I mean, I was just fascinated that this woman who had been working for Universal just made all these beautiful gowns that we can now see mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in detail on these DVDs and and the occasional Blu-ray release of some of these films. You know, and also the, 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 the set designers and the set decorators. Oh, man. Uh, who, uh, you know, they, these, these wonderful, wonderful sets. And every once in a while, you can see, like, especially in the earlier Universal ones, that they will reuse a lamp or a, yeah. a, a piece of sculpture you know, from set to set. Especially, like, in, in Dracula and in the original Frankenstein, pretty much the same set. They rearrange stuff. They use the same things, but that also kind of ties the, the whole genre, the whole the classic. It all ties it together neatly. Yeah. So, always coming from an artist's point of view, when I see things, I just really appreciate these these little touches. For instance, in the Son of Frankenstein, the style of the lighting. And the set design, everything was very kind of low and angular, you know, very cave-like. Mm-hmm. And uh, with The Bride of Frankenstein, things were very vertical. You know, the film, the, the lighting shadows had a, almost like a, an art deco kind of feel to it. And that was 1935. You know, these were some of the influences in everyday life, you know, with the architecture of buildings. And I mean, just look at any building in New York that was made in the 30s, you know, and then you look at a film that was made in the 30s, even like The Bride of Frankenstein, or, or even in The Son of Frankenstein, you have these gargoyles, and look at the Chrysler building, and so it, it's art, you could really, decade by decade, art, you can see the changes, and it, and it goes from, from fashion and movies, or clothes, automobiles, set designs, just like you said, it's all set in the time that it was made. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. While I was watching Ghost of Frankenstein this morning, I was I was trying to figure how could somebody create a timeline for these films because there are a couple of different pieces here and there, like we talked about earlier. There's electricity, there's phones, but there are horse and carriage and all this and a few uh-huh. things. It'd be really hard to kind of really nail down this solid time frame. But then it goes back to what you were talking about, how it's more of a fairy tale anyway. So it's okay that we have some of these elements that may be incongruous. And it just creates this wonderful kind of almost dreamlike atmosphere for some of these movies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think that, oh, they were set in Germany or Bavaria or Austria or something like that, but it really it is set in a fairy tale 
you know, European setting, you know, but also, you know, it was influenced by the times, you know, you look at the police uniforms, especially like in the Ghost of Frankenstein, you see the police uniforms, yeah. they look very much like the SS uniforms of Nazi Germany, it just, it just, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, I mean, they had these very, you know, snap-brimmed hats and, and very, very almost like armor-like clothing, how they were cut and designed, it's, uh, and like in the front of Frankenstein, you have Again, the very almost dramatic style in the clothing. Uh, and in the original Frankenstein, I mean, you do have you know the, the villagers and lederhosens and all that. So it is it like, yes, it's set somewhere there, but nowhere in particular. It's really fun to do, and I highly suggest whenever possible is to watch these on a big screen. In my studio, I've made a small screen, uh, like three feet by five feet, and I have a projector. And I, so I, I like taking a break from painting, and I'll put an old movie on. And, you know, it is wonderful seeing these the way they were meant to be seen, you know, on a bigger screen. And I would absolutely love to see any of the classics on a real movie screen, you know, in the theater. Where you live, mm-hmm. you, you've had some theaters that have shown the classic on a big screen. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, there's been a few times. There are a couple of uh, smaller theaters that will bring in some of the older films. And then around oh, Halloween, TCM did a, a deal with a local theater here and a number of other theaters across the country that we showed Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein on the big screen. Okay. And it's gorgeous to see them that way. I I agree with you. If you have an opportunity to see these movies on the big screen in any setting, you got to do it because that's how they were yeah. meant to be seen. And it's just yeah. it's this wonderful communal experience as well that you don't get watching it on DVD at home. Right, exactly. Now, you said that Magic Image had put out these scripts and all that for these older films, these shooting scripts that might have differences in them. Are there a couple of things that kind of stood out from the shooting script? Have you read the shooting script for Ghost of Frankenstein? Yes, I have. There were a few actual scenes. Well, the first one, it's kind of funny how they described it when Igor was digging the monster out of the sulfur pit. The monster was described as having his hair, his eyelashes, and his eyebrows burned off. And oh. I may be wrong, but I don't never remember the Frankenstein monster having eyebrows. But um, oh, that's a good so, point. Yeah, and there were scenes in the morgue that were completely cut off. There were scenes where. I think it was Dr. Frankenstein and Igor were going to the morgue to steal body parts. Oh. So, yes, there were, there were some scenes that were, were deleted, which would have been interesting. I'd like to talk about you know Jack Pierce just a tiny bit. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, about, about his, you know, how he was able, with these very crude elements, to create these wonderful characters. And in particular, in, in this film, the, how he was able to replicate the look that, that Cheney had when uh, Lugosi was digging him out of the sulfur pit, it just it looked right. You never questioned him. say, yeah, that's how he would look if he were pulled out of, like, dried sulfur. Of course, the wonderful, iconic makeup itself, you know, the headpiece and, and that. I know that he had uh, mixed feelings about, you know, working with Cheney, and, and Cheney, I, I guess, complained a lot about the the makeup, like the headpiece was too small. And I read that there was a, a part uh, right before Christmas in the filming where Cheney was complaining so much, everyone just kind of ignored him, like the, 
boy who cried wolf, and he, he tore the, the headpiece off, and it tore off some of the skin on his forehead. Ouch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Pierce used these very, I guess to a modern, a very uh, caustic, kind of very, uh, these different glues and plastics, and really uh, very kind of harmful to the skin. And But, you know, he was founding the, the whole genre of special effects makeup. And, I don't think you can think about the history of special makeup effects without at least putting Jack Pierce at the very beginning of it or near the very beginning of it. Absolutely. He was responsible for so many iconic looks. Oh, I mean, what? the Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. And, and Universal knew what they had. They trademarked that image. You know, oh, so oh, yeah. that's, that's the only place you would see that for a long time, oh, if yeah. ever. You have Frankenstein monster, you have the Wolfman. And he also did uh, you know, the beauty makeup as well. You know, so we did straight makeup and special makeup, even if it's just beards or hair pieces. You know, he, he really kind of did it all. A lot of fantastic work. Now, when he did the first Frankenstein's monster, it wasn't really a, a headpiece. It was all built up with, like, cotton and all that. But by the time they get to the Ghost of Frankenstein, it's a, is it a latex piece at this point that they're using? Do you know? That, I'm not sure. They, they say it was a, a rubber headpiece. Now, okay. I, I do know that in the original Frankenstein, each... Session. And you can see it in the film if you look, because the, it changes because from scene to scene, it's slightly different size, slightly different proportion, because it was all made from scratch with cotton and the collodion, uh, and just build up little by little. And uh, unfortunately, it was that attention, that hand-crafted, very labor-intensive techniques that, that Jack Pierce founded and created is the very thing that got him fired in the 40s because he was too slow and the process was just too slow. And the first foam latex piece that was made uh, was made for Glenn Strange. But I have seen... Oh, that's right, yeah. I have seen photographs of, I think, believe from the son of Frankenstein where they're putting the headpiece on Karloff. I think they got it down to it was a, a headpiece, but I think it was a, a more of a heavy rubber as opposed to a very light and airy foam latex. And of course, now they use anything from gelatin to silicone uh, appliances. But the technique is, is basically the same. You're creating these appliances to you know to go on your face. So they, that has not changed. You know, the processes, the materials have. But the process has not changed. And that's uh, a tribute to, to Jack Pierce and Cheney and some of the other early, very early uh, makeup artists. If you don't know who Jack Pierce is and you're listening to Mod Secret Radio, stop what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> go, go watch Frankenstein or The Wolfman or Werewolf of London, which is another great makeup. Oh, yeah. Go check these things out. Oh. Yeah, that's, his work is phenomenal. How I see the classics through my art is obviously based on their art, what they, the actors, the makeup, lighting. And I feel that when I portray the the characters, I'm not portraying the Frankenstein monster, but I'm portraying the actors who are playing the monster. That's why I always, I always like putting the makeup lines in, or the little kind of flaws that you might see, the headpiece that's a little bit wrinkled and that because that you, know, you never want to take away those things because 
then you're kind of denying that it's the makeup that these wonderful makeup people created. So you really want to honor not just the actors, and not just the photographers, but the makeup people as well by showing their work. And that's what I like to do in my own work. It's really a lifelong love affair with classic horror and sci-fi movies and the wonderful feel that they've given me over the years. And I, I never tire of, of watching them. You know, I've watched them all my life. It's, it, it's like well, fairy tales for adults. You know, and it's just wonderful. I, I never, with contemporary horror, I never quite got it. It's a little too brutal, a little too realistic. But with the classic stuff, I think because of what I mentioned earlier, it's the things that you enjoy when you're a child. Uh, things that you enjoy when you're an adult. I'm on your website right now, and I'm looking at the Bride of Frankenstein print or painting that you did where Frankenstein's monster is holding the Bride of Frankenstein's hand. And if you look closely on the neck bolt, you can see, you're right, you, you've put in the, I don't know if that's a latex line or something, but you can see the little puckering of the skin around where the bolt goes in, which you can see in Ghost of Frankenstein. If you look closely, there's a couple of side shots where you can see the, the puckering of where they put that appliance on the skin. But yeah. we love it, warts and all, man. So, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, they didn't, I don't think people were as critical as they are now. And with digital effects these days, things like that would be smoothed out in post-production. You wouldn't see this kind of thing. But it, it's funny that these films, the universal classics, were not that far away from silent films. You know, in the beginning of filmmaking, it's very, I mean, 1930, 1931, barely a year before that, they had the first sound film. So it, it really, it's, it's very early in on the whole genre of filmmaking and, and what they did, they, they, you know, building the sets and, and I think that also building these sets, you know, something they rarely do these days, you know, if they could find an existing place, they use it. But in the building of the sets, you do get more of a fairy tale kind of art, artistic background because they're impressions of what a European village looks like, not exactly what it looks like, but what they imagine it looked like. I love the sets, especially in the Frankenstein films, especially the laboratory scenes, mm. those big machines and the yeah. sparks and the Jacob's ladders and all that. I would just get lost in those rooms for days. Exactly. Sure. The great Kenneth Strickpatton, the, the great yep. electrical wizard who created all that, and they again, you know, you have one one person basically, you know, creating what we even today Frankenstein's lab has to have. There's Jacob ladders, or else it's just it's not a lab. You know, it's just exactly. Not really yeah, if you don't have that, it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might as well you know pack up and go home. Yep. Uh, <laughs> even in the Hammer films, the cascade of sparks, where it doesn't really mean anything, but you have to have it. Or else it's just not Frankenstein. It just doesn't feel right. And I, I do uh, have to chuckle in The Ghost of Frankenstein when uh, Dr. Bomber gets thrown against the electrical equipment and then is electrocuted and dies. Yeah. It's like there's always that one big machine. Who knows what it does? But if you touch it, and it, it appears in this, uh, you see it in Teenage Frankenstein. There's all these different – it's a Frankenstein movie if it's got the sparks, like you said, in the Jacob's Ladders. But there's always got to be that one machine that if somebody runs into it, they're going to get electrocuted. Right. Or like in The Bride of Frankenstein, and there's this big lever that's like a baseball bat. No, oh, no, don't press us. You want to blow the place up? 
why would you have this big lever that you press and you blow the place up? <laughs> At least put a lock on it. Why is it there? <laughs> that also goes to how the Universal, the, the monster films, that everything served the purpose of that scene, whatever scene it was. They know it made sense, but for that scene, it, it heightened the drama and it made sense that it was there. How else could you end that film? So, and it's all the same thing with the Ghost of Frankenstein. Like, yeah, if he were just throwing Dr. Bomar into the wall, you know, yeah, he might have gotten a concussion, but he sure would have been electrocuted to death. So, one more thing about the interesting fact I saw about the Ghost of Frankenstein is uh, Ludwig Frankenstein, his delirium, when he starts talking with his father. Remember the, I wanted to come back to that, yeah. Yeah, the, he was hallucinating, but all of a sudden, the, the head of his father is shown in different parts of the laboratory, and he's basically saying to his son, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're destroying my work? You know, what's going on here? And it was that also is very different and very modern into the, the 50s kind of psychological turn that Universal movies would turn into, you know, the psychological horror, like the early Hammer films in the 50s, psychological horror that they eventually moved into. But yeah, that was really, like, really odd. All of a sudden, he's talking with the ghost of his father or whatever that was, whether it was in his mind, never really knew. So it was very interesting that that happened. And it was Sir Cedric Hardwick playing his father, who again looked nothing like Colin Clark. I thought that was an interesting choice because we had seen the flashbacks in the journal. Uh-huh. It was clearly Colin Clive. To, <laughs> so to go from that to a very full-faced man uh-huh. <laughs> who uh-huh. didn't, even, didn't have the same hairstyle, didn't have the same voice that, I mean, we know as Colin Clive's. But I still thought it worked because, like you said, maybe it wasn't a ghost. Maybe uh-huh. it was like him just, you know, a delirious kind of thing, kind of hallucinating, something going on in his head. Sure. I still liked it. And, you know, he's going around the lab. Again, I'd like to get lost in that lab. He's going around the lab from the outside observer. He's talking to just random equipment. But uh-huh. he's having this conversation with his father. Yeah. And it's odd because the way Cedric Hardwick played Ludwig Pakistan, very conservative, very low-key, kind of, you know, very calm. And all of a sudden, he's had a couple of mushrooms and was going on a trip, you know, and seeing his dad, <laughs> seeing his dad's face in machinery. Yeah. Well, well, he was a, uh, a doctor of the brain, so maybe, um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that, actually, who knows? Diseases of the mind. That's what I think that was on his plaque on the wall outside of his house. But wonderful film. It, it really is the, you know, other than the, you know, some of the ones that followed, but really the last of the, classic Frankenstein films that really dealt with just the monster and the Frankenstein family. It really was like the end cap to that, even though there was more moves, Frankenstein movies to follow. It was a nice ending, I thought, to the style of, of the Frankenstein movies. I agree. I mean, I do like the other movies. Uh, I really enjoy Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman uh, follow-up. And I do think it's kind of, even though we don't get to hear his voice in the film, I do think it's fitting that Lugosi would then play the monster in that film since it's Igor's brain and Igor was played by Lugosi. So I did find that fitting. And I do enjoy that movie. I think I enjoy that movie maybe more for Cheney than 
the monster, but yeah. and the house movies are fun too. Because huh? in House of Frankenstein, you get Karloff coming back, and right. not as the monster, but you know, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. And I'm really glad that you picked this movie to watch because it's been so long since I've seen it. I got to you know start off my set. We're recording on a Saturday, huh? so I started my Saturday morning off right with a bowl of monster cereal that I stocked up on from Halloween there you go. and the Ghost of Frankenstein. I had a great Saturday morning. <laughs> As I'm talking to you now, it's uh, in New Jersey. It's, it's still snowing and it's gray and oh. the perfect classic monster movie day. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, Daniel, at the very beginning of all this, we talked about how I met you at a convention. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be at any shows coming up later this year that people might be able to find you at? Yes, actually, April 25th to 27th, I'll be. I'm having a special exhibit of my original paintings uh, here on the East Coast the very first time at the Chiller Theater Expo in Parsippany, New Jersey, North Jersey. And then in August, I have two shows. I believe it's called the Monsterama in Atlanta, Georgia. And the Jersey Fest, uh, the beginning of August, that's here in New Jersey. That is a pure model kit show. And uh, I'll, I'll be exhibiting my paintings and prints and some my you know monster sculptures and, and resin kits that I've created over the years. If anybody has a chance to stop by your table at a con, I, I highly recommend people do so because you always travel with these wonderful masks. You always bring plenty of artwork and listeners tell them Monster Kid Radio Sancho. You won't be disappointed by what you see. Oh, thank you, Dan. Absolutely. Please stop by and say hi. And in the meantime, if you can't get to a con, check out his website. It's danielhornstudios.com. And we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for that. Thank you. We'll have to have you back on again, man. Hey, thanks, Derek. I had a wonderful time. And to everyone, just enjoy them. They're gems to be enjoyed. I've known Daniel for a few years now. As I've mentioned before, I've got a few of his prints here in my home. I've actually got an original zombie mask that he created for us back when I was doing the zombie movie podcast. The man's artwork is amazing. It's only eclipsed by his friendliness and charisma. He's a heck of a nice guy. If you get a chance to run into him at any of the conventions that he's at, tell him Monster Kid Radio sent you. Tell him Derek said hello. And just check out his artwork. Now, he mentioned a few places that he's going to be. He's going to be at Chiller Theater at the end of April. He mentioned Monsterama, which is at the beginning of August. The Jersey Fest model kit and statue fair is also at the beginning of August. One thing that he did not mention was Monster Bash, which is happening June 20th through 22nd. Now, I've never been to Monster Bash, but I've heard wonderful stories about the event go over to monsterbashnews.com and you can find out all about this here's monster bash daniel horn's going to be there a bunch of other great folks are going to be there this is kind of monster kid mecca i'm really i mean you got to go to monster bash right just saying before we wrap up i want to go ahead and tell you about a couple of things coming up regarding podcasting me monster kid radio and the b movie cast This upcoming weekend on Sunday, February 23rd, I'm going to appear as a special guest on the B-Movie Cast. You can find them over at bmoviecast.com or just look them up in iTunes or Facebook. It's kind of hard to miss them. I'll probably also put a link over at monsterkidradio.net when this goes live. I'm going to appear on that show to talk about one of my guilty pleasures. It's a movie called Argo Man, the Fantastic Superman. 
It's also known as the Incredible Paris Incident. It has a handful of other titles as well. It's from 1967, and it's kind of an Italian sexied up Batman type movie. I'm talking about the Batman TV show with Adam West. It's got that kind of a vibe, but it's an Italian European production. So it's got a little bit of sexiness too. It stars Roger Brown as Argo Man, this superhero that has to stop. Well, I don't want to ruin it for you. You're going to have to tune in to the B movie cast to hear all about it. And then after you hear all about it, come back here to Monster Kid Radio next week because in episode 75, I've got an interview with the actor Roger Brown who played Argo Man in Argo Man. And that, man, you know what? I'll tell you about my experience with Argo Man over the B-Movie cast and next week on Monster Kid Radio. You're going to have to come back for that. And you're going to have to come back for a chance to win a copy of Argo Man on DVD for yourself, that's next week. That's on Tuesday. On Thursday, well, any recordings that I get from the Monster Kid Radio crash, the Santo versus the Martians movie, that's going to be going out on Thursday of next week. Again, big thanks to Daniel Horn for appearing on the show this week and talking about one of his favorite Frankenstein films. You know why it occurred to me? When we were talking about this movie, he kept saying this was his second favorite Frankenstein film. Next time I have him on the show, I'll have to ask him what his first is. I'm betting it's probably one of the first three, but... You know, we'll find out next time we have them on. Also, big thanks to the Surf Coasters for allowing us to play their song here on the show. Again, head over to surfcoasters.com to find out more about that. If you have any communication with the band, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Timeless Border. That belongs to the Surf Coasters from their album Surf Attack. Talk to you next week for Argo Man and Santo. That's a team up I'd like to see. (laughs) 